The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I had just arrived in London at 18 and spotted this movie marquee, Meetings with Remarkable Men. The film was about the philosopher Gurdjieff, but it was the title that spoke to me. I wanted to know people like that, people changing the world by the way they lived. I've sought them out ever since, and now we'll hear from many of them on the Victoria Moran podcast, Meetings with Remarkable Women. Welcome to the podcast. Your host, Victoria Moran, author of Creating a Charmed Life, Younger by the Day, and Main Street Vegan, invites you to conversations designed to help you thrive in your body, cozy up to your soul, and use your unique gifts to change the world. Now, here's Victoria. I'm reading the most wonderful mystery book, but it's not the kind of mystery that's like, The butler did it in the library with a letter opener. This is a mystery that hasn't been solved yet. And it has to do with every single one of us and our children and our parents and everybody that we care about. And this is the mystery of inflammation. What is it? Why does everybody seem to have it? Why are we hearing so much about it? And yet, Why do we seem to know so little about it? I think we're going to know a lot more at the end of this hour. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran. Thank you so much for spending this time with us today. And I am really happy to be introducing to you a Renaissance woman. This is Shilpa Ravella, MD. And she is in the very small group of people who is a brilliant scientist, but also a great writer. As I started reading her wonderful, wonderful new book, A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease, it was like reading the most entrancing novel that you could ever imagine. And I thought about other scientists who were also gifted writers. So Carl Sagan wrote the novel Contact. Everybody saw the movie, at least. And there was Sir Fred Hoyle, who was an astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, and he wrote A for Andromeda. So there are a few, and I feel that we now have 
a new one in the world of science and of literature. And we're going to be talking with her right now. Dr. Ravella is a gastroenterologist and author with ex expertise in nutrition. A Silent Fire, The Story of Inflammation, Diet, and Disease was just published October 11th. Brand new, brand new, brand new, so you can get it right away. And although it is her first book, her writing has appeared in The Atlantic, in New York Magazine, Slate, Discover, and USA Today, and she has appeared as an expert on ABC's Good Morning America and in print outlets, including Forbes, Cosmopolitan, Food and Wine, Glamour, and Women's Health. And she is an assistant professor of medicine at Columbia University Medical Center. Welcome, Dr. Ravella. Thank you so much, Victoria. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I am so excited about this topic. Because what I knew about inflammation before reading your book was largely website inflammation. And it's, oh, this new anti-inflammatory diet that appears to be the exact opposite of last week's anti-inflammatory diet. <laughs> and in reading your book, I see that there is so much more to this, not just the science, but the history. And you are such a good storyteller. So seriously, everybody, this is a book to read as well as to learn from. So let's start with just a little bit about you. I know that you were born in India and not long after that, you moved to Indiana. Tell us a little bit about your beginnings. Sure. So I was born in Varanasi, India, and my parents came to this country when I was around a year and a half old. And I actually grew up in Valparaiso, Indiana, and it's a small town that's close to Chicago in uh, northern Indiana. So I actually was exposed to a wide variety of foods in Valparaiso. You know, I, I actually was a very small child and small for my age. And so my parents would let me eat anything I wanted to. Uh, you know, they wanted me to gain weight as much as possible. So I would eat a lot of fast food. I would eat, I think I probably had Taco Bell every day for a month. And then I would switch to a different fast food restaurant. I ate a lot of my mother's home-cooked food as well, but in, in school, particularly with school lunches and such, and, and then also in, in fast food restaurants, I would eat a lot of different types of foods that were consistent with the Western diet as we know it today. So what were you like? Were you always scientific? Were you one of those kids who was good in, in math and science? Was that something that came along early? I actually dreamt of writing fiction since I was a little kid, which is, which is kind of a funny story. I was kind of bookish and I loved to read and write. I spent, I guess, a lot of time in libraries and in bookstores. Those were sort of my favorite places growing up. And science actually won over. I was also fascinated by science. I was really drawn to the idea of becoming a doctor from a very young age. I was curious about sickness and health and how the human body worked. And I really liked the idea of being able to help people improve their health in a concrete way. And that was really what drew me to medicine. And what led you to your specialty? When I was uh, training in my medical residency, I actually picked gastroenterology because I liked the blend of being able to see patients in clinic during my clinic hours and then also being able to do procedures. 
not long procedures like what surgeons do, because I do remember I fainted in the operating room once while assisting in a surgery as a medical student, but just shorter procedures like colonoscopies and upper endoscopies. So I liked that balance of having procedures and also seeing patients in clinic. So that was actually what initially drew me into gastroenterology. But after I began my fellowship and after I started learning more and more about the GI tract, I started to realize how, how fascinating the field actually was. I started to learn more about nutrition, about how food could affect health by preventing or treating disease. Patients were coming into my clinics with lots of diet-related questions, and I just would start reading everything I could get my hands on on food and health. A lot of research was being done at the time on the gut microbiome, so it was slowly becoming a bigger and bigger field, and I was fascinated by this idea that you know we have trillions of uh, microbes in our guts and how food could also affect the microbiome and consequently our health. So I picked GI initially because of the procedure clinic balance, but after I started my fellowship was really when I started getting very interested in the field and what it had to offer. How did you discover plant-based nutrition? I think it was sometime in my GI fellowship, I, I would say probably around 2010, when I started just reading a lot about food. And it was mostly because patients were coming into my clinics with questions about the things they were reading online and about the things they were hearing about in media. I really wanted to know what the evidence was behind some of their, uh, their questions and their thoughts. So I started doing a lot of reading about food and health. And I started realizing that you know, there is hard science behind this, uh, and it is a very powerful tool. You know, it is just as important as drugs, and this is something that we could be prescribing to patients. So I was very into this for a very long time, and I still am. And over the years, I just started learning more and more about food and health. So was inflammation something that was of interest from the beginning? And if not, when and how did that enter into things? I would say my interest in inflammation came from a personal story, someone very close to me. This was about a decade ago that someone very close to me had kind of a horrific autoimmune uh, disease. You know, he was working out at a gym one day, was a perfectly healthy uh, 30-year-old, 30-something. And he he came to his house and he actually started experiencing some neck pain. And that neck pain turned into a complete head drop. It was, it was literally something out of a novel, a, a horrible science fiction novel. And he, he was in a body brace for a couple of years. And you know, it turned out that he had this autoimmune disease, this rare autoimmune disorder. And I started thinking about inflammation more and more then. I started wondering what had happened to him. And, and I started wondering, you know, what exactly is inflammation? We we talk about it all the time. It's in sickness and health. It's so pervasive. We learn about it as a consequence of disease in medical school, and we learn about these inflammatory syndromes. I mean, there seem to be a zillion inflammatory syndromes, from arthritis to lupus. You know, there are so many autoimmune disorders. But I didn't really have a name for what had happened to him. I didn't really have an understanding of it. And at the same time, in the medical literature we were learning more about this concept called hidden inflammation. And hidden inflammation is low-level inflammation that you can't really even see or feel. You can be a completely healthy person walking around, not know you have it. 
So I started learning more about hidden inflammation and just became very fascinated by the whole concept and how it tied into our modern diseases. Do we have more inflammation than people had in the past? I would say we do because what's, what's happened is from an evolutionary perspective, our bodies were designed you know, to fight these ancestral traumas like pathogens and poisons and traumas. And we evolved a robust inflammatory response to deal with those things. But we want the inflammation to, to be robust, do its job, and then go away. But what's happened is that our environment has transformed so much over the last centuries, over the last decades, even, you know, from the food we eat to the air we breathe to how we move, how we relate to other people, what sort of social connections we're having, how we manage our stress levels. And our immune systems are just exquisitely sensitive to the triggers in this new world. These are all things that we are not used to. And so it's a mismatch of the ecological ecological niche that we evolved to inhabit and the one we currently inhabit. So we are more inflamed. You know, we also have a very different relationship with the germs that live in, on, and around us. And all of these things does do inflame us. It's also fascinating. So Dr. Ravello, what is an acceptable level of inflammation? Should we be striving for zero? We should definitely not be striving for zero inflammation. And that's one of the things that the si uh, silent fire delves into this relative quality of hidden inflammation. We do need inflammation to fight germs and heal wounds. Absolutely. And we will have an amount, a certain amount of inflammation running through our bodies at any given time, especially also given the mass of germs in our intestines and so many other things. So hidden inflammation is really a relative definition, and the book gets into this in detail. So I would love for you to share with our listeners before they get a hold of your fascinating book, some of the history. So tell us about some of those early players who first came upon this concept to begin with. There are very, very exciting characters in the past. Um, one of my favorite stories is the Russian zoologist Ali Mechnikov, uh, who discovered the immune cells, macrophages. Macrophages are immune cells with so many roles in the body. You know, they defend our bodies from germs, maintain bodily tissues. They are not the only immune cells, but one of the main cells that you find in this type of chronic low-level hidden inflammation that I described throughout the book. So I focus on them almost as you'd focus on a character and and I tell the story of their discovery by Ellie Mechnikoff, um, who sort of came into medicine from a very different perspective. And, you know, that day that uh, he was performing experiments in his living room laboratory, his family wanted him to go to the circus, but he refused to go to the circus. And instead, uh, he, he came up with a very new idea, which was that these cells in our bodies, these immune cells, are actually trying to defend us. And this was a wild notion for the time, you know, that we could have cells in our bodies that are actually trying to defend our bodies from germs or other things that are put into our bodies. And he struggled a lot in his life because no one really believed that his science was real, that he had anything real to say for a long time. And, and it, was, it was a long and protracted struggle and, and uh, a vicious battle, so to speak, with some of the other scientists. And I really enjoyed telling that story, you know, the story of his creativity and his perseverance. 
well, all of these people were utterly fascinating because it just seems like new ideas have never been warmly welcomed by the human community, scientific or otherwise. So can we fast forward to a little bit more uh, close to our own era? Tell us about Ansel Keys. What a fascinating person. Okay, so Ansel Keys uh, is a very controversial scientist who, who actually um, did some amazing work in the field of nutrition science. He, he launched a now famous seven country study, which was launched in 1958. And this was just a year after uh, the Framingham study investigators announced their first major findings on the risk factors for heart disease. And like Framingham, the seven country study was known as an observational study. So what Keyes did was he recorded the diets of healthy men and women around the world. And uh, he also co collected additional data like blood pressure and cholesterol levels. He would then observe the subjects for many years and then determine the rate of heart disease for death in each group and figure out if a certain type of diet or any other baseline measurement was correlated with an increased risk of heart disease. So Keyes was an amazing man. He assembled an international team of collaborators. And this was really in an age where we didn't have commercial jet planes, computers, and the internet. Um, he assembled all of these different scientists and he enrolled about 12,000 middle-aged men from the US, from Italy, Greece, Finland, the Netherlands, Japan, and Yugoslavia. All the subjects came from small communities and his focus on these locations was, was really guided not only by the obvious differences in dietary patterns between these countries, but also by logistics and budget. And he received support. He tried to gain support in places where he had established contacts and he looked for countries that could provide the funding and infrastructure required to complete the study with governmental corporation and such. And he took careful notes. A credo of his laboratory was that the data had to be of the highest caliber, valid and reliable and very re relevant to uh, the scientific question. And as the first five and 10 year follow-up data from the seven country study emerged, what Keyes data showed, this was consistent with findings from other studies, was that a person's age, blood cholesterol, blood pressure, and smoking status were correlated with the risk of developing heart disease. But he was really the first to find on a grand scale that food was also tied to his risk, uh, tied to this risk. And what he found that saturated fat actually grows along with both blood cholesterol levels and the risk of developing heart disease. And diet was why, he's thought, American men had twice as much heart disease as the Italians and four times as much as the Greeks, Japanese, and Yugoslavians. So he stressed really that the type of fat consumed rather than the percentage of total fat intake was a key factor. And that is really interesting. I think especially for listeners to this program, many of whom are very uh, stalwart adherents to a whole food plant-based diet with no oil at all. So where do you see the science overall coming in on this today? I think when you take into account, particularly when you take into account this notion of hidden inflammation as an entity and the fact that we, we do need to find the tools to not only prevent, but also to suppress and to reverse it. Uh, and we, we are finding now that a whole foods plant-based diet is actually the best type of diet to do this. 
And when you look at food, not only from a, a historical perspective, but also an evolutionary one, and when you take into account the gamut of nutrition science data and the fact that we have trillions of germs inside us that are very important in immune function and inflammation, we know that this is really the best type of diet that we have today in order to counter inflammation. So just so that everyone understands, you are saying it's not just the saturated fat that Ansel Keys talked so much about, but it's really total fat that we need to be paying attention to. Well, it's more, it's more the type of fat consumed. You know, it's, it's, more, it's more the fat, for example, saturated fat is found in many foods, even in small amounts in, in foods like nuts and seeds. But it's more, it's more the type of fat in the context of the whole diet. So when you are eating lots of modern animal foods, you, you get tons and tons of saturated fat. So in that context, you want to avoid the animal foods. What about olive oil? So when you look at the, the plethora of plant oils, so olive oil is the principal source of fat in the traditional Mediterranean diet, along with whole olives. And it really does capture the most attention in medical literature. When substituted for saturated fat from animal foods, it may prevent heart disease by lowering both LDL cholesterol levels and inflammation. Olive oil is largely made up of monounsaturated fats, and it also does contain anti-inflammatory polyphenols like oleocanthal. And like NSAIDs, oleocanthal inhibits COX enzymes. So olive oil is a, good, is a better choice than saturated fat from animal foods. But oils in general and saturating your body with oils or too much oil in your diet is, is not a good thing. That sounds very wise. And I know you also have three simple changes that we can all make in our diets if we haven't already to reduce inflammation. What are those? Sure. So one of the first things I would say is to try to eat an anti-inflammatory diet. And if you look at, for example, uh, the way in which uh, folks living in the blue zones eat, this was a concept popularized by journalist Dan Gittner. The blue zones are places around the world where folks live very, very long, highest proportions of centenarians, and they eat 95 to 100% minimally processed whole plant foods. Lots of seasonal fruits and vegetables. Beans are very central in their diets. Uh, you can see seaweeds in Okinawa, Japan. And if they eat animal foods, they're eaten as flavorings or side dishes. So that's one big thing. And one of the other things that they do is that they seamlessly exercise. They incorporate movement into their days very naturally. And this doesn't mean you need a fancy gym, but they try to walk to different places or they do their own home repairs or they garden. And in some way, they seamlessly incorporate exercise into their daily lives. The third thing that they do really well is that they control chronic stress. And we know that stress can have profound health effects and stress can affect hidden inflammation and the potential to become chronically inflamed. So finding ways to counter stress, for example, by getting enough sleep, by finding ways to relax like meditation or yoga, by forging social connections uh, that are both casual and profound, all of these things can help uh, control stress. So those are sort of three examples of anti-inflammatory eating and living. Oh, it seems so simple and powerful. So thank you for that. 
So with the confusion that's out there in terms of what is an anti-inflammatory diet, I really appreciate that you explained eat more like the people in the blue zones do with very, very little in the way of processed foods. But people who look online for anti-inflammatory diet will sometimes see that you don't want to eat any grains or you don't want to eat gluten-containing grains. Sometimes animal products are included, sometimes not. So is there such a thing? Do we even know yet what a truly anti-inflammatory diet is? Yes, we do. I'm very excited to talk about the answer to that question because the anti-inflammatory diet as an entity is so confusing when you look online. Um, and again, when you look at this diet in the context of the data as a whole and in the context of history and evolution, it is quite an inclusive diet. It doesn't entirely cut out or ban many foods, particularly plant foods. You know, we want to be eating whole plant foods. And you often see in an anti-inflammatory diet, various types of plant foods excluded for various reasons, from gluten-containing grains to tomatoes to eggplants and to all kinds of other foods. But these foods were historically part of the anti-inflammatory Mediterranean diet. We have so much research on how healthful this diet is. And the other thing to take into consideration is that you know, food preparation can also affect how you tolerate a food. So when it comes to inflammation, there may be some confusion as to whether folks are actually experiencing food sensitivities and inflammation or simply food intolerances. If you haven't been preparing your plant foods in the right way, or if you haven't been eating a lot of plants for a very long time, your body initially is not going to react very well to them. Well, that's so interesting because we so often hear people say, I tried that, it didn't work for me. What do you do with that, Dr. Ravella? If somebody's been eating a whole food plant-based for a week or two and they say, oh, I feel worse than before, what do you say? That's a great question. And I think it's really tough to go from eating very little plant foods to an entire whole foods plant-based diet in just a couple of weeks. Because what, what one also needs to realize is that your body, you know, the microbes in your gut are not used to seeing all of these plants. So if someone has been eating very few plants for a long time and all of a sudden changes that up, the gut microbes are kind of going crazy and sort of wondering what's going on. And, you know, they're having trouble sort of digesting this food. And that's, that's the process that takes time. So I usually start patients slow. So I don't throw a whole bunch of plant foods on them all at once, but I tell them to start slow to be mindful of how their food is prepared from soaking to fermentation uh, to sprouting and other factors and try to focus on anything else that could be going on inside their bodies from GI perspective that may make them tolerate this diet less and try to address those first as well. But it's, it's a process. Uh, so, so before giving up on the idea of a whole foods plant-based diet entirely, one must really try to figure out where the problem points are because this is the ideal long-term diet and when you look at exclusion diets, when you look at excluding, for example, gluten-containing grains, exclusion diets are appropriate in cer certain circumstances, but it's really dependent on the patient. Obviously, for celiac disease patients, we don't want those, we don't want those patients eating gluten, and we have diseases like non-celiac wheat sensitivity, where patients also must avoid wheat. But for the, 
majority of people, whole foods, plant-based diet, including grains, is the ideal anti-inflammatory diet. That sounds generous and yummy. So when you were describing the way that the people eat in these blue zones, you did mention one specific food, which is beans. Beans seem to show up everywhere, lists of longevity promoting foods and cancer preventive and heart disease preventive and all that. But share with us, please, in addition to beans, some other important foods that we really should be eating pretty regularly. Sure. So I'll give you a short list. And I think, you know, there are so many foods and the diversity of plant foods is a very important factor. Uh, So in addition to beans, which are one of my favorite foods, uh, berries, for example, are wonderful anti-inflammatory foods. They're filled with phytochemicals, particularly polyphenols, which are very important anti-inflammatory nutrients. We haven't really identified a polyphenol deficiency yet, but maybe that's coming in the future. But berries are wonderful for this. Leafy greens, so dark leafy greens are amazing, amazing anti-inflammatory foods filled with antioxidants and one of the best foods that you could be getting your hands on in the grocery store. Nuts and seeds, uh, you know, just a, even just a handful of nuts a day, a small handful even, has been shown to have enormous health benefits. Cruciferous vegetables like broccoli and cabbage, these are also very easy to cook. And these are very important uh, for your immune system and for inflammation. And are there any plant foods that we really should be watching out for? Or can we pretty much, unless there's an allergy or a sensitivity, if it grew up out of the ground, it's ours to eat? Absolutely. I, I completely agree. I don't think that we should be excluding plant foods from the diet unless we have a good reason to do so. You know, you should... It's almost like you should actually see your doctor and ask your doctor, why am I excluding this plant food? If you know if someone tells you that you should be excluding it, or if you're reading about it online uh, and, and you're seeing that it's part of a quote-unquote anti-inflammatory diet. Because the, the other part of all of this is that if you, say, have an intolerance or a sensitivity to gluten and you're feeling like you can't eat these types of foods you really do need to see a doctor and make sure you don't have a serious disease like celiac disease before starting the quote-unquote anti-inflammatory diet. I love this, and I love the idea that all of those amazing fruits, vegetables, grains, beans, legumes, and nuts and seeds are out there to lower our inflammation, keep us healthy, help us stay around for a long time. Hooray! Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You write in your book, and we've certainly heard this in recent years, that the gut microbiome is extremely important. It's always surprising to me when something that I've never heard of all of a sudden (laughs) becomes really, really important, but that seems to be the way it is with the gut microbiome. So can you explain to us in layperson's terms why it's important and what we need to do to keep it happy? Sure. This is one of my favorite topics. And basically, we have trillions of uh, microbes that live on, in, and around us. And in our intestines, we have trillions of bacteria, viruses, fungi, protozoa. And we're learning more and more about how these microbes can affect our health. One of the very interesting things that we've come across in recent years is that these microbes are actually having conversations with our immune cells at all hours of the day. So microbes actually help to shape the immune system. If you look at, for example, germ-free mice, this is a very sad story because these poor mice are grown up in sterile bubbles. They they come out of a C-section and they're put in these sterile bubbles and they get sterilized food and water and they're completely free of germs. Their immune systems just don't develop. They cannot handle infections or any germ. Uh, They have hyperactive reactions uh, to simple environmental uh, materials. They have a shrunken heart and lungs. They have brain defects. So our microbes are very important for the development of our immune systems. And they are also shaped by the immune system. They play a very important role in low-level inflammation and in our inflammatory reactions, in our propensity towards developing some autoimmune reactions even, and just allergies and such. So the gut microbiome is, is crucial for immunology and for inflammation. And some of the things that we can do to optimize the health of the gut microbiome, well, the good news is that, you know, we already, if you're eating a plant-based diet, if you're eating diverse plant foods, you're 90% of the way there, you know, you are doing amazing things for the gut microbiome because gut microbiome craves fiber. So your microbes feast on fiber is the most important nutrient for them. And a lot of us have a fiber deficiency. And one of the reasons that a lack of fiber is so bad for your health is because all of these microbes in your gut crave that fiber. They metabolize that fiber to beneficial compounds like short-chain fatty acids, which are the life support for your intestine. And short-chain fatty acids also do many, many wonderful things in terms of calming down inflammation and being beneficial for your immune system in general. And one of the things that you want to keep in mind for the gut microbiome is that how you prepare your food also matters. And you want to minimally process your food. So you don't want to deep fry your food uh, you know, so that it's unrecognizable. You don't want to have a lot of processed foods in your diet because then you lose some of the fiber and all of those beneficial nutrients. So you want to think of minimally processed foods. So baking or light sauteing, boiling, steaming, sauteing, those kinds of preparation methods are much, much more beneficial for the gut microbiome because there's just more fiber and more of those beneficial nutrients. 
raw foods, including some raw foods into your diet is also a great idea for the gut microbiome. Fermenting some of your foods is also wonderful because fermentation introduces those beneficial probiotic bacteria into your gut microbiome. And even if these bacteria don't stick around and colonize your gut, because one of the complaints that folks sometimes have is that, well, if I eat fermented vegetables, how do I know that the bacteria are actually going to sort of stick around and become a part of my gut? But even if the bacteria travel down your intestines, they are, again, having conversations with other bacteria, having conversations with your immune cells. And even in those fermented foods that have been heated, you know, for example, a nice sourdough bread, the intrinsic quality of that food has been changed. And, you know, you are still gaining so many different benefits from, from feeding your microbes fermented foods. So those are a few tips to optimize the health of the gut microbiome. I love that. It sounds like happy bugs, happy life. Dr. Ravella, in the book, whenever you list inflammatory conditions, some of them end with itis. So we all know that those are inflammatory, but there are some surprising conditions listed as well. Cancer is often there, heart disease, and probably the most surprising one to me, obesity. How does obesity count as an inflammatory condition? Well, one of the things that we realized is that the belly fat that folks have is not just sitting there. Uh, the belly fat is actually a proxy for fat around your abdominal organs or visceral fat, which is a deep fat around these organs. And this type of fat is actually highly inflammatory. In very obese individuals, about half of their cells in this belly fat can be made up of immune cells. So it spews out inflammatory molecules. And it's tied to the complications of obesity, like diabetes, heart disease, cancer. And this type of fat also does portend a higher risk of early death from any cause. But I think it's very fascinating that this type of fat is actually sort of like an immune organ. It is like an inflammatory organ. So it turns out this inflammation at all hours of the day and exacerbates the risk of chronic diseases. But Conversely, the subcutaneous fat that's just beneath the skin is harmless when it pads areas of the thighs or the upper arms. That type of fat can act as a sink to even protect other tissues from toxic, toxic effects, too much nutrition and such, but it's really the belly fat that's dangerous and inflammatory. Utterly fascinating. So if you are as intrigued by all this as I am, you must read A Silent Fire, the story of inflammation, diet, and disease. This is if you want to learn about inflammation or if you just want a fascinating read about history and mystery and amazing people, you can also find out more about my lovely guest at her website, shilparavella.com. On Instagram, she is Shilpa.Ravella, and on Twitter, Shilpa Ravella. And you know what? We're going to put all that in the show notes at victoriamoran.com. So do check those out. And finally, as we wind down this incredible conversation, I just feel so much smarter than I was 40 minutes ago, even though I have been reading the book as well. And that is the concept of inflammaging. How does inflammation make us get older faster? And what can we do to slow that down? Sure. I, I've always been fascinated by that topic as well. And inflammation is actually becoming much more prevalent in the literature. 
In 2013, we recognized it as one of the hallmarks of aging. And the hallmarks of aging are several essential biological mechanisms that likely drive aging in humans. So for example, our genes tend to grow a bit more fragile, more prone to mutations and alterations over time. We, we end up uh, accumulating injured molecules and other stressors within our aging bodies. And our bodies paradoxically become less adept at handling stress. Uh, we, we have uh, the telomeres that start to shorten. The telomeres are DNA sequences that act like buffers at the ends of our chromosomes. Um, so inflammation is also a hallmark of aging. Um, and it also connects, it's a common force that unites the other, uh, the other hallmarks because the hallmarks are not independent entities, but highly interconnected processes. And they kind of converge on inflammation. That is so interesting because um, I want to anti-inflammation. How's that for a phrase? <laughs> that sounds, catch that on. sounds perfect. <laughs> that sounds perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your wonderful book. And thank you for going into this field. I know a, a lot of young people have some interest in medicine and then they look at all the difficulties and complications of being a physician in 2022, and they decide to do something else. So I'm really glad that you decided to do this and that you're sharing with your love of writing and literature, as well as your love of science. You are indeed, like I said, a Renaissance woman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Victoria, for your kind words. And it was really a pleasure speaking with you today. The pleasure was mine. So the okay. reason I haven't shut off the recording is that after my guest leaves, I kind of talk with the audience a little bit. So thank you so much and all oh, the best you. with the book. And thank you for the kind words about the book. Uh, really oh, I'm, I'm nuts Very about nice. it. I'm, you know, <laughs> I love Watch words, it. you know, words, words are my life and when that I was how really, I grew up. I loved fiction. <laughs> so, yes. I'm, and I'm when there's nonfiction that... that reads like fiction, you know you're on to something. Thank you. So very it. good luck. And I hope to see you around New York. Yep. Take, Take care. care, Victoria. Bye-bye. Do you feel smarter too? <laughs> I love talking with people who know so many things that I don't know. It seems like when we get together, we learn all of these things and it makes us all richer. And you know what else makes us richer? When somebody tells us that they appreciate something that we have done. And I want to share with you a message that I got from a listener. Her name is Angie Sullivan. And this is in response to our last episode, the episode uh, with Egli Cologne Stevens. If you didn't hear that one, Egli is an amazing woman. She's a doctorate in education and a very, very committed mom. And her beloved only daughter, only child, passed away from cancer at the age of 24. So on the program, Egli was sharing how through faith and fashion and roller skating and all sorts of amazing things, she's navigating the grief process in a way that is very beautiful 
unique and honoring of her daughter. So this was the message that I got from Angie. I just had to tell you a short story about an experience I had today that I think you will appreciate. I had listened to your interview with Egli Colon Stevens earlier this week. Wow, what an amazing woman and story. And I was out walking, thinking about your interview, in particular about how Egli believes in signs. The story of the white feather gave me chills as she told you that story about Natalia and the white feather and how one appeared on her window as you were interviewing her. Wow, just chills. Anyway, as I was thinking about what she said about signs, I started thinking about them and how I used to watch for them as I do believe in them. As I was thinking about that, I prayed for a sign. It honestly was a prayer for a general sign. I asked for a sign that showed I was going in the right direction with my life, that I would be okay, that I'm not alone, as I have been struggling with some issues lately. Well, literally, a few steps and seconds later, I look in the grass next to the sidewalk and I see a bookmark. Here is what the bookmark read. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is a quotation from the New Testament. I believe it's uh, one of the letters of Paul. Then Angie goes on, I'm not a religious person, but I truly believe in the spirit, in Jesus, in Buddha, in many of the spiritual leaders. Now, if that wasn't a sign, I don't know what is. So I wanted to thank you for interviewing Egli and thank you for all that you do and all the light you bring to this world. Well, gosh, thank you. That's very kind. And I hope that you listening uh, got something from Angie's experience because I think that when I look for signs and wonders, I see signs and wonders. And when I look for another ordinary day, I get that or something less than that. So I'm a signs and wonders gal. And I really appreciate your being part of this wonderful experiment in reaching out to remarkable women, hearing from remarkable women, and seeing if we can get a dialogue going to make this world kinder gentler, safer, saner, more sustainable, and a lot more fun. Take care, everybody. See you next time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can learn more about Victoria or contact her at victoriamoran.com. Be part of her inner circle by joining the Victoria Moran podcast listeners group on Facebook. And if you're a vegan looking to up your game, check out Victoria's acclaimed training and certification program, Main Street Vegan Academy at MainStreetVegan.com. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. 
I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.